0: Uh, hi, this is John Stepling, and this is Aesthetic Resistance, and this is Podcast Twenty One. Uh, and with me from Los Angeles, um, again, I'm glad to say, is Guy Zimmerman. Hi, Guy. John, how's it going? How are you? I'm good, man. What's, um, What's going on? Yeah, you know, we— I mean, strange times, you know. Oh my uh, God! It's, it. Yeah, it's um, it's it's extraordinary and and we'll get into a little of that um but um i wanted to talk about uh chris rossi and i did this thing the other day and at the end sort of as a as a sidebar i was mentioning why i thought certain tv series certain films uh, were successful and others were not. And part of it was having an actor or actress who like carried the show, which is the vernacular, right? And yeah. uh, what what constituted that? And so it got me thinking afterwards, because we didn't get into it much, um, what what I mean by that, what is, you know, this is, this is, we've, we've (laughs) suggested before that we should talk about acting. So, so let's do that a little. Um, And, and I'll only begin by saying, uh, I used to maintain that great actors were the ones who could listen the best, the most intensely, the most thoroughly, the most sensitively. and that that listening then triggered a set of other things that happened. Um, and I still think that. But I would add to that that there's something else um, uh, about, about an actor giving to other actors. Because you hear actors say that. Oh, you know, this actor gives you a lot when you're out there with him. Or this actress gives you a lot when you're out there with him. And, um, I think it would be interesting because I think I know what they mean, but it would be interesting to talk about
1: yeah it's, it's what that is right i mean I, I i always think that this is one of the one of the unique features of of um, producing creating developing whatever you, however you want to say it creating theater in Los Angeles, especially for a writer, is that you you have this unmediated connection to actors, whereas usually that connection is mediated by directors and producers and the whole apparatus of production that that actually is, is deeply political and does certain things to what can happen. And I think, um, so we get closer to the very strange thing that happens with actors on stage with a text. And it is really quite this remarkable and very, very misunderstood thing that, that really, you know, you have to remember how far back it goes that, you know, the you know, Western philosophy in general arose out of an opposition in a way to the, the, the mimetic activity of what, you know, what was happening in, 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 in Greek culture at the time that had to do right, with right. theater, the birth of theater there's always this, but really centered around the difference between the apparent and the real that was Mm -hmm. always linked to actors, you know, performing, which was this new thing that people were doing. And then I think of, I know we also wanted to talk about Gilles Deleuze. Yeah. Yeah. and, And difference in repetition. And, you know, the thing that's always remarkable to me is the way that acting requires, you know, acting, is especially the kind of acting that we like that's so rooted in a kind of uncertainty on the part of the actor a confrontation with the openness and then you know the text as this framework and you know it's it requires what I think of in Deleuzean terms as real thought meaning you know for Deleuze you know real thought is linked to this art Artaud concept of stupidity, of, uh, you know, what Beckett called batiz, which is, you know, this animal stupidity, you know, and, and Artaud, which I think Deleuze liked the statement that, that real thinking is is the hardest thing there is. But it's, it's what I see actors actually doing. And of course, one of the things that you just touched on that's so remarkable is that it is by definition, You know a um a non-individuated activity in other words it really is about this connection between actors on stage actors on stage and the audience actors on stage and the text it's it's a distributed activity you know it's not yeah yeah you know what i'm saying like yeah no
0: i think that's no i mean i think that's absolutely right and and interesting um you know the repetition part is is crucial and i i had not gotten to um repetition and difference or is it difference and repetition um by deleuze until very recently and and it's a remarkable text for for theater it is um in yeah. terms of theater and and he kind of is inverting freud a little bit but um but what he is suggesting in terms of a, a theatrical practice, a discipline or something, is that is that we learn, we live, we feel through repetition. And certainly on stage, we do that. So that empathic presence that one actor has with another actor this giving and see i think the giving comes out of listening as well right and and that that empathic connection can only exist through through this this constant repetition of things through rehearsal through through memorization and uh and it's a it's a but there you know there are within that curious paradoxes right and and kind of subtle contradictions, but I think basically um that's you know that's that's true and if you hear this noise i'm I'm wiping the snot off my nose <laughs> um anyway uh the 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 listening is because we know actors who don't do that, sort of selfish actors, and and other actors will always complain about them, and they don't listen, and they don't give, and they're concerned entirely with this presentation of themselves, Um, and they're invariably not in the play. Uh, And then the opposite are actors who who kind of disappear into the play, in a sense, into their character, into that text, I mean, Lee Kissman we both love. And, and I remember what struck me about Lee early on was that that he listened so intently, so with such focus. And, um, but I think when we're talking about film and TV, some of that is harder to pick up, obviously. The camera's not on characters who are not talking, for one thing, usually. Uh, and, and um, it's, so it becomes something else. There, there's something else. And, and I was watching the new HBO show, Perry Mason, and it's actually not very good, but it doesn't matter. But Matthew Reese, uh, is one of those kind of actors and it's partly a, and this was Chris Rossi's suggestion, which I think is right. It's partly a kind of relaxation. I mean, it's bodily and, yeah that's the that's
1: that's the batiz part you know yeah
0: yeah and it's it's i mean this is more intent um more intense in person in live theater and it's more disruptive it's more frightening that kind of um you know empathic presence and and um uh uh, that's the word i'm looking for um the, the that empathic presence and closeness and connection that you get in live theater between the audience and what's on stage which is the the product of constant repetition i think that that's extraordinarily disruptive to the status quo in a sense i mean it's frightening and we're living in a society that's you know repressing feelings uh, more and more, and I mean, the COVID thing is a kind of perfect example because people are putting on masks, they're social distancing, they're doing everything, you know, and you can't go to live theater. I mean, it's Oliver Cromwell again, um, under cover of risk management. That doesn't matter, but but in terms of the art form it's not possible obviously you know so we do what we can with with radio theater and things like that but um i think i think that there is an enormous power in in that that triangle of listening um giving uh and relaxation somehow for lack of a better word
1: well it's the, i mean I, you're right i mean I think it's it's something that comes up out of the body, which is this you know out of out of the out of the material body you know it's i mean you know it's in a way it's that thought is finally material it's not this platonic thing that floats above the world in some <laughs> abstract realm right i mean but those those oppositions are very real, meaning yeah. You know and it's very real in 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 western culture you know that basic opposition between thought as abstraction and thought as something embodied and active on on a material level you know and that is exactly where uh, you know where deleuze positions his thought you know and it's post nietzsche it's post but it's interesting john because it's also you know he's a marxist too right into the end you know and in in a way you can look at you can you can look at Deleuze as a reconciliation of of Marx and Nietzsche which is pretty remarkable yeah I
0: mean that that particular book is is an absolute um treasure for for theater I mean I I riffed off of it for theater artists theater theoreticians um I'm I was you know just kind of borrowing randomly almost um the other day when i did this blog yeah, post because I, it's I it's that. it's really rich for you know it it's so applicable to to this idea of of artistic practice i mean not just theater but it is it is very um relevant to to how we think about theater because acting and i i'm always kind of talking about this i mean acting is um, this enigma—it—it it is all of these things, and it's not all of these things. You, you know, know it's,
1: it's it's very interesting because I I remember my ears pricked up once talking to John O'Keefe, and he said <laughs> something about your work. He said, "Well, you know, John reminded us of the actor," and I and I it, it, I didn't get much more out of the exchange, but. Um, <laughs> As you can imagine, but but I understood what I understood what he what he meant. And it made me think that what had happened for you at the start of your, you know, of your of your playwriting is that you were doing it in this context of like what one of the things that you were attending to was like, you know, what can Lee do? What can I have Lee do? What can I have Beth Rusha do? What can I have Rick Dean do? That would be interesting, you know, and that again it was the it was a product of this primary connection between, you know, a poetic sensibility in the writer and a capacity in the actor, a capacity for real thought. Yeah. In the actor. In the actor, which can only you know, real thought, which can only happen on stage, ironically. And this is where, you know, I mean Murray gets close to this often, and and this is of course, Murray Mednick, which is part of what the whole essence of the Padua Hills Festival was, which was that theater can be anywhere, it can be you know everywhere as a stage, potentially for real right. thought that requires these elements um, yeah, and I think that's what
0: part of what the enigma is. Um, Is that you know, yeah, theater can happen anywhere, anywhere can be a stage, but as soon as it becomes a stage, it ceases being anywhere, you know, then (laughs) it's somewhere, right? Right, yeah, and so it's like the creation of a place, well. that's extraordinarily powerful all right
1: right. listen this is where we have to get into this Deleuze i mean sorry let me let me know if there's too much Deleuze in this no 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 please but but this is where we have to get into the nature of the virtual for Deleuze because you know for Deleuze the, the virtual is a realm that is that is part of the real but it's not actual and it's, a, it's an absolutely radical concept. You know, you, you say, if you look at, you know, it's linked to the concept of capacities versus properties, right,
0: mm-hmm. where
1: you could say, you know, if I'm gonna list the properties of a knife, this is an example, Manuel de always uses, you know, if I, if I wanna list the properties of a knife, a kitchen knife, you know, I can do it. It's this long, it weighs this much, it's got these properties. And that's it. You can do it exhaustively, but capacities is something else, you know, for, to list the capacities of a knife is impossible because you, you know, you can use it, it involves, there's all sorts of things about capacities, you know, that right. is the capacity to affect and be effective. So a, a knife can cut something. It can pin a note to a door, which is another Delanda. Uh, it can be used to throw at somebody you can't list it exhaustively and yet those capacities are real but not actual even when the knife is resting in the drawer and this is something that I always that's because they're virtual they're virtual and this is something that I you know so what DeLiz does is sort of broaden the domain of the real and so suddenly you know you and I bring this up with students when I'm teaching a lot which is like okay so the interesting question is to ask yourself you know what are your capacities and then you see the politics of it because of course you know the 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 the, the realm of state domination or or you know whatever is always trying to reduce you to your your properties you are this and this this is your number this is how this is your role and things this is Whereas your capacities are, you know, you have infinite, every one of us has infinite capacities
0: right. and they're
1: real, but not actual. And they, you know, they're a part of the real. And then it, it has this political thing. And of course it's extremely theatrical too, because when you think about, you know, the capacity of theater to be everywhere, it's, this is the truth of the actor. They, right. are, they are exploring a capacity to become or to be Richard III, or, you know, a character in a John Stepling play. And it is real. It's yeah. just not actual. So, you know, do you see what I'm saying? I mean, that's yeah, No, 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 this
0: is, it's extraordinary. And, and because I'm thinking, you know, there is this, just to go back to, you know, the idea that, um, I mean, I used to say half jokingly that, Um, The first theater, cavemen sat around telling each other stories, and one day in a circle or something, you know, by the fire, one day one of them stepped away and walked over and started acting out, and everybody turned and watched him. Suddenly there was an audience, and he started doing something. Suddenly there was a play, right? Well, maybe it was a, a sermon. I don't know, but probably it was a play. But it was this invention of place somehow. And, and this is, you know, Bly said this thing, and I've quoted it before, that all learning takes place in ritual space. And, and I think that's true, basically. Um, and so you're, you're inventing, you're creating a place, you're taking this space and creating a place and... That place, by the nature of this multifaceted complex discipline that's connected to language and text most profoundly, you are correct uh, creating a, a a ceremony, a ritual of some sort. And I think that that therefore the actor becomes a sort of <laughs> vessel for um Something learned something that can only be learned in um, uh, the the kind of ephemeral transitory but extraordinarily real uh, ceremonial space of theater, and then when you layer on top of that the idea that these actors in in, you know, are speaking memorized lines, it becomes it becomes even more it's, you know then it becomes really a complicated discussion. And I think that's why improvisation is always so bad, you know, always lacks these dimensions and is not enigmatic. Once actors are allowed to stop remembering their lines. And coming up with some doing this other thing which admittedly I suppose is a skill I don't find it interesting but but that's me but it's but it's but it's disconnected from a history of a practice that that is tied into into remembering well it's yeah well it's
1: it's detached from the ceremonial for sure when that happens, it, it, it drops the ceremonial dimension. But it's very interesting because to me, there's also this, this subtle distinction between, you know, in, in some ways, I would say, the ceremonial dimension of theater, which is what redeems it for you and I, right from what, you know, what, um, uh, you know, what might be called or what what has been called the deadly theater. Right. Right. Um, Which is, you know, the banality of melodrama or whatever that um, Peter Brook talks about. Right. And so, you know, the ceremonial dimension is what redeems the entire art form for me. I just have no, you know, people have been talking about and I don't want to digress on this, but like, yeah, you know. Hamilton, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, no, for me, no. Uh, uh, no, you know, profoundly, no, it's trivial, and I'm not interested, you know, and it's, I mean, whatever the value of it is, is it a cultural phenomenon, I don't, I don't have a problem with, but like, no, it's not something that I, I find, right, of, of any kind of urgent interest at all. Whereas, when I see um, that ceremonial dimension, that is so miss, so absented, so so absent from our life, I feel an urgent connection to it, you know, yeah. and, I'll, and I'll go to bat for it, you know, because it's it feels to be so important.
0: Right, and I think so, it is, and I think the problem, one of the problems, myriad problems that we have in this society with contemporary criticism being what it is, is that we have no critics trained to have this kind of discussion, frankly. Uh, so they look at things in in terms of, well, what kind of effect was produced? Did people laugh? Were they happy leaving the theater? Are they going to go buy the cast album? I don't know um, what things exist in this world that I'm pretty thoroughly disconnected from. But I know that great theater the, the, the structure of the storytelling. See the paradox for me is that storytelling is both incredibly important and completely irrelevant, right? At the same time in equal measure. And, and it's very hard to talk about because on the one hand, that text, there has to be a story that's being told, but the importance of the experience, it doesn't matter to me at all if the story is even finished as long as these other things are taking place, which is this magic empathic transference, the creation right, it's of even, a ceremonial space, right. et cetera, et cetera. Right. Yeah.
1: I, I mean I, well, I think it's even more pointed than that in the sense that you absolutely need, you know, the the narrative the the narrative tendency, which is which is really you know hardwired into us. It's about yep it's the predictive dimension of cognition where I want to find out what the pattern of development is here. What, what are the causal laws that govern what can happen so I can get ahead of danger and maximize, you know, pleasure or whatever. I mean, it's, it's part of this sort of individuated, you know, it's in Deleuzean terms, it's under the sign of identity where, mm, yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. all, and it's, it's about, the, you know, the exchange economy. So, you know, story or narrative is a strong tendency that if you're a playwright, you naturally want to deploy as a part of what it means to hold an audience and attract an audience and engage an audience. And in fact, engage the, you know, the, um, the faculties in an audience that you actually want to completely deconstruct <laughs> you know, you you yeah. want to disassemble that tendency toward narrative, which is of course, you know, the, the essence of fascism. You know, fascism is this story that, you know, somebody without a story and who's who's drowning in uncertainty and un and un, unable to process the uncertainty of existence. Right. The ambiguity no, so that's this all is, around this... us. And suddenly someone comes along and says, Oh, wait a minute, here you you can play this, you know, this is the story and you're playing a role in it. Look, you're, an, you're not just a border guard. You're an important role in the future of, uh, you know, something great called America. So suddenly you have an orientation <laughs> and, and you're tremendously grateful and you'll do anything for that because it relieves you of what's most terrifying. And this is why this is the theatrical dimension of fascism.
0: Right. Absolutely. And I think this is incredibly important. Um, and back to repetition in relation to what you just said, because I think that's true and it's important. And the, the, the Victor Klemper, is that his name wrote the book about Nazi propaganda? He was a Nazi propagandist as I recall anyway, but the Another book is band. extraordinary. And he, he has descriptions that sound exactly like contemporary America. Right. I mean, exactly. And this is one of the secrets on one level of of the Donald Trump phenomenon but it was of the George Bush as well and really of of Clinton Obama was a kind of outlier in the sense but is that you just keep repeating the same bullshit the same the same propaganda you just keep saying it over and over and over and over and over and over and over you say it 5000 times the dissenting voice says it three times that maybe a few people heard about. So it's just the creation of this. I mean, that's what indoctrination is. And that's fascistic. And the the story then is linked into this other register of of repetition. And this is where it gets you know, complicated and subtle in a sense, because it's, and I think this is, I think this is p- hugely destructive, in fact, in, in the contemporary world, and is is one of the perhaps intentional, perhaps not intentional byproducts of, of, of a highly marketed oh, system sure. of oh, reality, sure. right? Oh, for that, sure. Yeah, and that they they, they are going to repeat this certain thing over and over and over and over. And they're gonna tell you this certain myth over and over and over and over and over. And they're going to work, you know, really hard um, to, to stop people from, from even being aware of, of, of alternatives to this kind of For process.
1: Sure. Sure. So, yeah, I mean- I mean, you quite- know, so, but you know, it's, it's also true that, you know, every advertiser knows that it takes about 10 seconds to hook someone into a story, you know, right. every advertisement is a little story, a little narrative with a hook that says, you know, buy this and you'll you'll feel better about your life. Right. And you'll be playing a role in the world instead of being a lump of uh, of uncertainty and ambiguity, you know. And this is, of course, the you know the opposite of various awareness practices and spirituality, where you yeah, so it's turn so and it's say you turn and say you actually can learn to deal with that uncertainty. And it's actually the source of rich experience. And it's, you know, so stop trying to push it away and engage with it, right? Well, it's,
0: it's also, it's strange. It's also like the marketing wing of, you know, everything is aware of this kind of repetition. We have to get the message across, repeat, repeat, repeat. And it bears superficial similarities to the kind of repetition we're talking about with, with memorization and rehearsal and any kind of empathic, yes, but, mimetic but this is what, right. awareness. It's a different kind of thing, but it has come to stand in for the real thing in a way.
1: Well, and this is, but this is the crucial, you know, this is the crucial distinction, of course. You know, like if you or I went to if, if I find myself going to what many people think of as a good play, within 30 seconds I am hyperventilating and looking for the exits because I'm <laughs> I, I am I am being right as opposed yes. to as opposed to you know the the sort of post beckettian work that appeals, you know, where you you suddenly feel like some fundamental in the withholding of certainty in the, you know, the embrace of, you know, the embrace, like the promise of clarity, but the withholding of certainty and the, and, and like helping me collectively in a group of people acclimatize it, but you reconnect to the fundamental, uh, you know, uncertainty of existence, which is another name for that is uh, freedom. Then, uh, freedom from conceptual frameworks and 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 you know reductive maps of experience that are extractive and manipulative. In the collective experience of that freedom, I am suddenly in where you know where I want to be. And I I uh, you know I remember seeing Sarah Kane's play, uh, Four Forty Eight Psychosis. Yeah. Uh, right on the eve of George Bush's re-election, which was a very dark night. And I I, I had this, you know, tremendous uh, experience of like, uh, I left the theater afterwards feeling, uh, you know, tremendously uh, in, empowered again by that experience, you know, and it was just a reminder Sugar. of the politics of that theater, right? Of the kind of theater that we're drawn to. Let me make one other point though, which is that, like if I go to see a Richard Foreman play, and I love Richard Foreman, but you know the, the problem I have with that aesthetic, of course, is that it doesn't trigger the, um, the part of me that wants the easy answer of the story in order to deconstruct it. Like it never gets to that point. It says, here's just direct experience of something else yeah, I, mean, I love that, but it's not doing the thing of stripping away this reptilian dimension of my, you know, brainstem that has to do with uh, no,
0: and that's that's very interesting because I have I it, it, and I'm glad you said it because I have this I love Foreman too, and I and that's not that's not lip service or anything. I mean, he I think he's really important, and the interesting thing is my favorite. Piece of form in theater was when he directed a botho Strauss play.
1: Yeah, well, there you go. With Richard Jordan
0: at at the New York Public um, was extraordinary. I mean, you know, is one of the seminal experiences of my life in theater um, because to see his theatrical intelligence applied to this other thing. Yes. That we're trying to was amazing yes for sure so yeah it's it's hard it's complicated and um it, it, there is there is also something i think um you know the repetition that because i always i think zemo is that his name the great no Um, author yes
1: He has
0: talks about repetition at some point i know i don't remember but um the kind of repetition that for example takes place in no or takes place in in you know certain kinds of theater that that we like and and even in in um in shakespeare there is this um this repetition is, like they say in chess, it's forced. Um, you have to do that, you know. You, you, otherwise, you're not even playing chess anymore. You're doing something else. So, so certain things are forced. There's a kind of respect for a certain kind of repetition that has to take place or, or you're doing something else. You're making chocolate chip cookies. I don't know. But this forced um, practice is... Is also tied in with with a kind of patience and um, listening and seeing, right? I mean, well, and these are the things that get short-circuited in the fascist repetition that we're referring right.
1: to. Yes, because because there's blindness and deafness involved in those. Right. You know, it's you know, in a sense, I want to say. What happens in that repetition is that you get closer and closer to. That's how you can get closer, in a public way, to being, right? But yeah. again, if you're looking at Deleuze, there's, you know the, you know the the tremendous irony is that what you find in being is difference. You don't find identity. You don't find you know you you know in other words there's a reason why you can only get to that place through um, through the, the differential action of the actor. Right. You no, know, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, yeah. it's, you know, it's a, It's, yeah, it's a...
0: really hard, man. It's hard to talk about.
1: <laughs> well, it, but it is, that, well, that, but, that but of course... Good. The
0: differential actor is good. No, but I get, I see, I know exactly what we're talking about. And, and language is, is hard. You know, it's a naughty, it's a
1: naughty problem. Well, and we can only point to it in a discussion like this, right? Yeah. But If you if yeah. you see, you know, I remember some of the work we did with someone like John Horn, and you're yeah. like, you know, John Horn offstage is something fundamentally different from John Horn on stage, and you know that you're seeing something much, much, you know, of greater magnitude. On stage, right? Yeah. I mean, he moves. He would, and this is true for any. For God's sake, Rick Dean uh, of all actors. Yeah. Know, like suddenly you're you're in the presence of somebody with real magnitude, whereas off stage Rick was tormented by you know all right. these productive
0: Well, Rick was the great paradox, you know, because. Um, because it was almost that degree of magnitude that strange instinctive integrity that he had on stage at his best yes. anyway yes um, um, seemed almost um, impossible without the the torment off stage somehow the they were in inver- function yeah. off stage
1: well they you know the, they, there was an in inverse relationship between his integrity on stage and his complete lack the lack like of integrity on stage. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah sadly you know, his you know his his and he was apologetic about his utter lack of integrity yeah
0: stage. well you know people used to people used to come to me a lot because rick, rick at his best he was he was really well behaved with me compared to some i know somehow you had it but, but you know people would say to me how do you put up with that isn't that a pain in the ass i said yeah but but do you see what happens at the end, you know? Do you, well, he was, the well, behaved. Result, he to was me, well behaved
1: with you. Yeah, yeah
0: is, is worth it. Yeah, it's just for worth sure. it at the end of Storyland, you know? Oh, for sure. This extraordinary sweeping bow or whatever it was. I don't know anybody else. I mean, it was, it was one of the greatest things I've ever taken part in creating, you know? No, it was totally singular would be so uh, to look
1: at it.
0: Yeah. yeah so i you know yeah but but i think it's also um okay you know it, it's interesting because there
1: are just
0: john let me just of, make a
1: point let me just make a yeah. point there please please there is no other theater milieu in which it would be possible for you in collaboration with rick dean to uncover that final bow and its artistic merit except fucking Los Angeles where <laughs> you have people like Rick Dean this you know this <laughs> this film star in the Philippines and Peru you know yeah. who is available to do the theater of someone like you i mean i don't know it's just so extraordinary right yeah well
0: but this was the great um the great importance of Padua. Yes, know? yes. I mean, it just was. And, well,
1: as and, a completion of the off-off Broadway movement. Yeah, I think. through yeah. Murray's, you know. Uh, you but know, you know, there there
0: was. I mean, there are m- a lot of different pathways toward you know finding this thing that we're we're, we're circling around and pointing towards. I mean, there are. It, 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 there, there's just so many paradoxes. I mean, um, the, the actors I know who I really value are often, um, not very articulate about what they're doing. You know, it's operative on a, on an instinctual level. Um, and, and maybe some of that giving, um, that connection, uh, that, that you see in, in certain actors um is is you can't be the product of of a of a of a instrumental analysis you know it's just it's just not it's it's something else but but it requires a a, some sort of foundation in in you know a spiritual practice of some sort of creative, for lack of a better word you know a, a creative spiritual practice that that allows you the preconditions to to stumble out there and as our said you know be naked and terrified um and never more yourself
1: yeah and gesture um, through the flames
0: yeah sense. and and so it's you know it's the repetition part is so funny because you know, repetition, and Deleuze doesn't deny this, even if he inverts um, Freud a little. And I hadn't realized how much Deleuze and Guattari um, had had considered Jung, which is really interesting. Oh, but anyway. oh
1: yeah, oh, for sure. I mean, you know, the, um, and, and in, it, yeah, and Berkson. Of
0: course. Yeah, and so you have this repetition that is still tied somehow to trauma, right? Because for Absolutely. Freud... We're going to try to, you know, we're going to try to do it this time um, without, you know, with a different result, except that's not really what we believe, but that's what we tell ourselves. Well, and, and that's kind of this compulsive quality. Well, that,
1: right. You're a dude. Yeah.
0: And uh, so, you know, what, what, what you are dealing with as a director and then as a playwright as well, you are dealing with a stage space in which these extraordinarily powerful forces are potentially going to be opened up, you know, compulsion and and trauma, trauma and for personal, sure. you know, fear and terror and nakedness. Right. And, 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 and a deconstructing it, of identity. So, right.
1: Yeah. And yet, it, right. Which, and that deconstruction of identity has tremendous transformative capacity vis a vis the culture as a whole. And of right. course, the culture as a whole wants nothing less than any kind of transformation, right? Because, you know, and it's very, it's very interesting. And so that's why the whole theater apparatus is actually devoted to preventing. That what you just described from ever happening on a stage, you know the whole Mark Taper Forum, blah blah blah. Uh, right. Even you know that exists in order to prevent what you just described from happening.
0: Absolutely,
1: and it's no, I mean, absolutely. the issue of and the issue of trauma is very interesting, right? Because you know Deleuze and Guattari also. This, is, of course, the cornerstone of their whole you know schizoanalytical uh, rejection of Freud is that. At the, at the core of every identity is a moment of psychosis right. that actually mints the identity. So, and this is of course something that anyone who has ever taken psilocybin or LSD or peyote or whatever, this is, a, this is something everyone understands if you've taken one of those substances that's right. so, you know, that you right. figure so prominently in, in the development of the human really secretly. Is that yeah. you understand what it means to go back into that place of quote unquote psychosis, which is freedom in a way, and that psychosis,
0: vis-a-vis hallucinogens, is always or or certainly the vast majority of times is tied into um, a sense of wearing a mask and a false identity. Absolutely, and absolutely. Suddenly, suddenly, you are self you are aware of your own mask and it's
1: terrifying you know absolutely Um, right you and you've ripped away your own mask and you look behind it and it's like whoa yeah but of course it's also extremely vital and most cultures you know that are that are less destructive have always maintained one you know access to that place through the ceremonial it's
0: very interesting it's very interesting and and i just you know i think that what just to kind of slide back a little bit to where we began what's interesting is is that we no matter how much a system a corporate system of of kitsch and junk and commercials and, and the spectacle being reproduced and All of this stuff, false consciousness being, you know, hoisted up before us all the time. There is still the residue of the truth, right? So that, I don't know, The Sopranos, which pretty much was junk, but the reason it was sometimes not junk was that Gandolfini was one of those actors. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. You know, and sometimes you went aha <laughs> you know it was a moment yeah a mo-
1: a radical moment right yeah yeah
0: and and so it's it's it seems somehow on one level that that it's it's very hard to completely eradicate but they certainly seem you know they the system certainly seems currently pretty intent well, on on trying well this know?
1: is well and and of course if you if you want to step back if you step back far enough and you say, well, you know, you have to look at, you know, it it really is this sort of um, battle between identity and difference, finally. And which is gonna emerge, you know, so if, if you look at that, you say, well, you know, one of the tremendous forces of identity as a primary quality is, the exchange economy. And this is where you reconnect to Marx. And you say, you know, a coin, this is my whole, you know, theoretical sort of uh, hobby horse, which is, you know, (laughs) that, that the coin is actually a little identity machine, you know, that it has difference on one side and identity on the other. And it's meant to encompass one in the other, so that identity emerges always as primary. And that if you you know if you look at the the birth of coinage in ancient Greece and a couple of other places at around the same time, and you look at uh, you know philosophies of um, identity that begin and that propagate forward with ideas of um, sovereign power, state power, went and and how that organizes human society. You know, this is where you know, for example, we you and I talked about Ann Carson. That's exactly the 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 transition she described yeah know, moving from a that book thing. is amazing i mean it's amazing
0: yeah. because she really does um find a, a way to articulate this thing we're talking about um in a in a you know in this
1: beautiful but way in a, right about poetics you know right but um, in a, in a certain way the as you point out It's not clear to me. It's never clear to me. And of course, I have also kind of a Buddhist take on this, which is adds a whole other kind of wrinkle to it. But it's, you know, it's far from clear where things end up finally, and that there are these traces, and sometimes they're very important traces of this other truth, this underlying truth, you know.
0: Well, yeah, and, and this is, um, this brings up the, I mean, because what troubles me as say a playwright, an artist, a writer, whatever I am, director, what troubles me is, um, and, you know, we've mentioned before, I've mentioned many times, well, the problem is there's no audience for, you know, we have to educate an audience, all of which is true, but it's, but it's, but it's not exactly that. It's, it's, the I mean it is, but it, that doesn't go far enough. What what we're talking about is a a society that is so
1: amnesic now that. Well, um, let me let me you know it's you very go ahead please. You know. Have you have you been watching? It's not so so good really, but it's interesting. Is the the loudest voice? Have you been watching that piece about Roger Ailes with? Um, with with what's his name? Um,
0: no, no. <laughs> you well, know,
1: it's 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 interesting, you know, with Russell Crowe playing Roger Ailes. And it's just I mean, it's interesting on the level, if nothing else, of the level of history, right? And and yeah. we have to remember, historically speaking, right, we're we're living at the at the end, at the tail end of the neoliberal experiment, which was this radical experiment in reductive thought and a complete surrender to capital, to identity, to, you know, complete self-alienation through the entrepreneurial self. All this bullshit that has been forced down everyone's throat through propaganda of the Fox News variety, but of course it's present in all the other venues anyway and it's present everywhere in the market economy and it's been forced down our throats for 50 years and it has achieved this remarkable state of unreality and it is And, and and it is desperate now because it is being revealed as being complete fucking bullshit well you know we're we're
0: seeing we're seeing um we're seeing the, the the measures taken, I mean, this is what scares me in a sense, like travel restrictions, you know, contact tracing, right? Mass surveillance escalation. This is
1: where I agree with you that it's what we're seeing is biopolitics. This is yeah, biopolitics. and
0: yeah, biocapitalism, as somebody said, and and it's terrifying because. Um, it is substituting. You know, I had a conversation with a friend who was here, um, actually sitting behind me right now, um, who's visiting, and and about the Castaneda books way back, right? Oh yeah. yeah. And and how the one, and I remember it too. That that was so resonant, and what the idea contained in it was this: you can't go home, you know, because home has changed home is gone. I mean, I feel that when I go to LA on a, on a sort of trivial level, but it's more about something with a much longer timeline, a much longer horizon backward and forward. And, um, you know you think of the Enlightenment and you think of the stuff that that launched and and this journey through logical positivism and and the industrial revolution and meanwhile there's manifest destiny and there's colonialism and there's just extraordinary things that that are you know the worst the worst aspects of 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 humans and in the you know and there were some real triumphs and great aspects of humans but we have arrived at a place now where where these restrictions all the new kind of you know biocapitalism is is in the service it seems to me first and foremost of stopping stopping people from from shedding those rote behavioral ticks, you know that unconscious. They don't want you to take the mask off. They don't want you. And so now, literally, there's an allegory for you. You know, people wearing masks don't take them off. You'll be fined. It's very funny to me. Um, but but it's it's the biocapitalism is about is about stopping everything we're talking about it seems to me
1: but it's very it is very interesting right because all i would say is that you need if you're going to talk about biocapitalism you have to include uh all social media is a is a biocapital machine including (laughs) and of course including zoom which is the media you and i are exchanging these stories so it's you know, no, it, which is really
0: is terrifying you know, I have uh, to say
1: well and 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 at the same time you know this is where you see uh you see not only is there bio capital but there's also a, a, this other um capacity for connectivity that is in a strange you know this is this strange kind of other side where you know if, this is why I want to focus always on this sort of, you know, the near enemy of the neoliberal uh, yeah. episteme and say, well, if we get rid of that, all of this capacity for connection is potentially has this other, can you know, these other capacities can be actualized, let's say.
0: Well, the, the great, the great you know, you're telling you know, like Zoom. Yes, we're trying to actualize something different that chips away at this, this um, you know uh, edifice of repression and 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 um, occupy sort of psychological occupation, and that's aesthetic resistance. That's why that yes. makes sense to me. You know, yeah. is that the, it, the the extraordinary importance of text but and learning to actually read text and my god people can't read i'm just you know people are enumerate people are are terrified and have this you know i mean we can go on and on and on This shaky self-image that's based on this and this and, anyway and a shopping you know a mind that is constantly shopping for a new self and etc but aesthetic resistance means you know stepping back and and trying to actually hear what you're saying, what you're writing and- um, Well, this
1: is where- And, and to slow, we're... and
0: there's also some part of being slow in. I feel like people hurry over- oh, Of course. The moment, you know, yeah, go so, on.
1: So look, look, this is where you get to this place for me of, all right, you know, let's bring it back to this issue of bêtise of, you know, this embodied knowing that is close to the you know it's close to the body, it's it's close to the animal aspect, you know, it's it's you know, and if you look at, at Sam Beckett's, if you look at Samuel Beckett's work and you look at you know, you've heard me go through this before, of you know, you go from Ham in Endgame to Max in the Homecoming, to, you know, the television show, Tell Death right, right. Part to Archie Bunker in uh you know all in the family and then of course you're a half a step from both Homer Simpson and Donald motherfucking Trump right. and and it's like you know this is how uh, so this is how Beckett's kind of particular kind of irony and and understanding propagated forward through the world having its transformational impact not through people directly understanding Beckett but through this this you know this rhizomatic propagation of his of his anti patriarchal point of view, and then you 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 realize the hysteria of you know the regime of identity in the form of Donald Trump that it's this hysterical psychotic. Well, you're seeing, of, yeah, you you're know, seeing... and it's like, well, what happens after we get rid of this fucking shit? And not just him, but also the Republican Party, and the part of the Democratic Party that's always been pretty much just a, completely a unique. You know, I mean, what happens if the whole thing topples over? What happens then? Well, okay, so maybe, you know, in other words, the story isn't over yet. Let's see where things go. Yeah. You
0: know. Well, we, I was having a discussion with somebody today, and I guess we're probably going to have to wrap up here, but, because this has been great. But I was discussing, like, the U.S. military, I said, you know, well, there's five hundred, you know, five billion dollars a day. They have nine hundred bases around the world. Nobody asks exactly why you have those bases. You know, what what you protect? Who are you protecting? Because pretty much nobody wants you there. So you see these deformations, this disfigurement of the oh. human. I mean, you see it in, you know, to be a little trite about it, but I mean, you see it in the, the physical presence of Trump or the physical presence of Kissinger, you know, or any of these people who have, who are these Dorian Gray, um, you well, know.
1: I, I would um, want to come back in a, in a, in a, in, and come back to your mention of Castaneda, and I would want to talk about the nature of the sorcerer as a, as a, as a figure, you know, that you see yes. the sorcerer that you find in Deleuze and Guattari, and what that means exactly, yeah. you know, and then I would want to talk about certain non-Western traditions, shaman, shamanic traditions, yeah. shamanic points of view from all the different cultures in the world. And of course, my own access to that, which comes through, you know, the, the sort of quasi um, Shamanistic dimension of Tibetan Buddhism—that's so interesting to me—and also oh, Kashmiri yeah. Shaivism, you know, the 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 tantric Shaivism of Kashmir. All those well, they, all those systems of thought are extremely potent and interesting to me. Absolutely,
0: and and see, in all of that stuff, all of that stuff is connected to to in a broad sense theater. That everything is theater. You bet. You, Theater is before everything, and theater is after everything. All right, so we have to do another one of these. There's no question. (laughs) All right, all right. Yeah. Oh, thank you, man. Uh, Thanks, Guy. Uh, I will talk to you soon, and um, and we will do another one because this was just
1: terrific. Thank you. All right, thank you, John. All right, man. Later.